Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife Mandy and I watched the movie One Night in Miami. It tells the somewhat fictional story of the night that Cassius Clay won the heavyweight championship title. Um, after the fight, he and his friends Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, they want to go out partying uh, to celebrate the victory. Uh, but instead, they end up in the hotel room of Malcolm X, another friend. During the night that follows, these men have some heated conversations. Cassius Clay has decided to join the Nation of Islam, and the next morning he actually makes that decision official, and he changes his name to Muhammad Ali. Malcolm specifically pushes Sam Cooke's buttons. He sees so much potential in Cooke, but believes that he's not using his platform to speak to the injustices of African Americans in the way that he could. At one point, Sam storms out. He needs a break. Cassius follows after him. He gives space, um, but he stays with him. And they eventually find their way back to the hotel room. There is a bond between these men, and they are fiercely committed to one another. Uh, They've decided not to be passive. They're going to speak up to call out what they see in one another. Now, you may wonder, what this story has to do with this passage, and we'll come back to it. I guess I could have shared the story of the last time I went to a really good steakhouse, and before ordering, did my Christian due diligence by saying to the waiter, wait a minute, this delicious steak wasn't first sacrificed to an idol, was it? Well, has that not happened to you? Yeah, me neither. So one might ask, so is there any relevance in a passage like this? And that, that's the good thing with the lectionary. If there wasn't, I had three other passages to choose from. Uh, but I, I think there's a, a lot of relevance for us uh, today. Uh, now, a couple weeks ago, Jamin gave some real helpful context about Corinth and this church, this letter. And so I won't repeat that. But one thing I will remind you is that, as was often the case, the churches that Paul started... Uh, faced issues after he left. They had questions, and so they would write him a letter wherever he now is with their questions and their problems, and he would respond. And those responses are, in large part, the New Testament letters that we have. And 1 Corinthians is one of those responses. One of the questions they had concerned eating meat that had been sacrificed to a god. And while this isn't an issue for us today, it was a huge issue for them as pretty much all meat served at a gathering in Corinth had first been sacrificed to an idol, to a god. Some in the church felt this wasn't a big deal, or at least it wasn't a big enough deal that they would be prevented from attending these events. But others felt that it was absolutely forbidden. And factions had formed in the church over this issue, and if you've read 1 Corinthians, several other issues. Um, And so part of Paul's goal with this letter is to provide some guidance. Now, as we go through this text this morning, there are two main things that I want to talk about. The first one is the creative tension that is found in navigating the freedoms that we have in Christ. I'll say it again. The creative tension that is found in navigating the freedoms that we have in Christ. And the second is the creative tension that is found in navigating relationships so that we become the community that God has created and called us to be. So let's first talk about the creative tension that's found in navigating the freedoms that we have in Christ. Uh, To do that, we have to um, understand what a huge deal freedom in Christ was to Paul. It had changed 
everything for him. You have to remember who Paul was, or his name was Saul, when we first meet him. He was, as he called himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew and loved and practiced the law. It was all about doing this and not doing that, yet for him it didn't lead to a changed heart. Yet when, when he encountered the love and grace of Jesus on the road to Damascus years earlier, everything changed. His previous letter he's written is Galatians, and it's all about freedom. His entire theology and practice moving forward was shaped by this freedom. And so at the end of the day, this issue that the Corinthian believers have brought up to him isn't that big of a deal to Paul. Why? Well, if he believed that there's only one true God and that these so-called gods weren't gods at all, then there actually wasn't any sacrificing going on. There actually wasn't. It was just meat, and Paul liked good meat. You could, he believed that you could actually worship the one true God by really enjoying a good, delicious steak. He would later say in Colossians, in everything, whether eating or drinking, do everything to the glory of God. So it seems pretty cut and dry, right? Well, it's not. Why? Because the Bible says, don't eat food that was sacrificed to an idol. And we don't even have to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, Well, the Old Testament says you can't eat meat. You don't have to go back that far. We just have to go back about six or seven years to the Jerusalem Council to see this. Um, This story is found in Acts 15. Jerusalem Council was at the tail end of Paul's first missionary journey. And the big idea that came out of the Jerusalem Council was that Gentiles, non-Jews, did not have to first become Jews before they could become followers of Jesus. They could remain Gentiles, which in part meant that the fellows didn't have to be circumcised. Good news. The, the apostles ended up writing this letter to the churches throughout Galatia, where Paul's been, to, to share this good news. And at the tail end of this letter, they tack on two requirements. Say, lots of freedom, lots of freedom. Couple requirements. Number one, abstain from sexual immorality. And number two, abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols. So Paul is super excited by the decision that the apostles have come to. And he wanted to share it with all the churches. So he goes back to Galatia and he shares this good news. And then he continued to share this as he planted more churches in the second missionary journey, which is where Corinth comes into play. So fast forward, now six or seven years, he's in Ephesus writing this letter to the church in Corinth. You have to ask the question, was Paul no longer following what the apostles had commanded? Now, he still feels very strongly about the sexual immorality part. He spent some time in Corinthians talking about that. Did he not feel that this part applied? Did it not apply in in Greece the way it did in Galatia? It seems pretty black and white, right? Here's the thing. There are times when I wish things with faith were more black and white. Just, Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. The truth is that things are more often gray than black and white with our faith. And navigating the gray is messier and more challenging, but it seems to be the way that God has designed life with him. Said another way, creativity isn't required when all you have is black and white, but discipleship to Jesus involves creativity. It involves asking questions. Uh, A few nights ago, 
my son Adam and I were watching the movie The Two Popes. It's another mostly fictionalized story of a couple of conversations between Pope Benedict and soon-to-be Pope Francis. Uh, Pope Benedict is, was getting ready to uh, resign the papacy and retire. And he, wanted, he was thinking that soon-to-be Francis would be the next pope, but he wasn't too sure if he'd be okay with that. And he wanted to kind of vet him a little bit. And they had this exchange over how Francis's beliefs have changed over certain issues and that he had become a little more progressive on certain issues. Benedict says, you compromised. And Francis says, no, I changed. Now, those are two very different words. Change is a good word. Compromise, change can be a good word. can also be a bad word. Compromise is never a good word, right? That's a negative word. Do you see, though, it's a very gray area? I don't want to compromise. Uh, Ordinary men and women throughout history have given their lives for what they believed in. That's a big deal. But it's important to talk about this because sometimes it's hard to tell what's what. It's, It's sometimes difficult to know if it's change or if it's compromise, and that's a part of discipleship, asking those questions, wrestling with that. That's a commendable thing. In, in my former life as a pastor, one of my favorite things um, was talking with skeptics. Uh, in part because I'm a skeptic. Faith, faith has never come super easy to me. I've always been one that asks questions. I still do. And I believe then as I do now that God isn't scared of our questions. So neither should we be scared. We all change. We all, um, our faith progresses. Uh, just like some things with Paul changed over time, it changes for us. Maybe it's participating in an activity that some believe is sinful that you don't. Maybe not eating food sacrificed to idols. Maybe, maybe something like alcohol, which I remember 10, 15 years ago was looked at very differently than it was now. Or maybe it's having a different political affiliation than your parents do. I know a lot of us resonate with that. Or maybe it's having a theological conviction that might even be a 180 from what you once believed. It's not to be frowned upon, it's to be expected because we change and we grow and faith is not stagnant. I've always encouraged those with questions that a posture of humility before God and before others was key. If, if we go around um, believing that we're better because we no longer believe something that we once believed, it's not helping anybody. As The key is humility. As Paul says in this passage, knowledge puffs up. That's all it does. So as we wrap up this first point, the key thing to, uh, is, is that we understand what a huge deal freedom was to Paul. Not simply because he liked freedom, but because he understood that navigating your freedom with humility is a key component to discipleship. Yeah, what we find as we continue this passage is that there is something that's an even bigger deal than this to Paul. So with the time remaining, I want to talk about the creative tension that is found in navigating relationships so that we become the community that God has created and called us to be. So Jamin texted me on January 5th to ask me if I'd be willing to preach this morning. I told him sure, and later that day I looked at the lectionary passages. I was drawn most to this one, and Jamin had said he was thinking this passage as well. The next day I'm watching TV, like many of the rest of you, and all hell breaks loose at the Capitol. 
in light of that and really in light of where our world has been um, in relation to this pandemic and politics, um, I, I begin to see this passage in a new light. So I want to I read the passage again, but I'm going to read it from the message. And as I do, I'd like you to, to think about this passage in terms of what's been going on in our lives this last year. Paul says, The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions. But sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. They say, again, quite rightly, that there's only one God, the Father, that everything comes from him and that he wants us to live for him. Also, they say there's only one master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. In strict logic, then, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that, but knowing isn't everything. If it becomes, any, if it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idol meat and, and are sure that there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. Listen to this. An imagination and conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a fellow believer still vulnerable to these old associations to be thrown off track. For instance, say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols, where the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. Isn't there great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue, someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature, sees you go into that banquet, the danger is that he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference, but it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idol-tainted meals if there's any chance it will trip up one of your brothers and sisters. This is the word of the Lord. Do you feel the relevance? And do you also see that Paul just shifted gears on us a little bit? There's a line in this commentary I read this week. It says, we tend to exercise our personal rights to the fullest while totally disregarding the opinions and needs of others. Now, how amazing would it be if this were the part in 1 Corinthians 8 that we no longer found relevant, that we had mastered that? Our world would sure be a better place. 
Truth is that this is a big part of the cultural narrative today. Our rights are the most important thing. Don't mess with our rights. Our opinions are truth, at least to us, and so someone who thinks differently has got to be wrong, and sometimes crazy wrong. I I saw on Facebook last week a question that WMC uh, TV 5 asked on their page. It was an exit poll on how people felt about Donald Trump. There were hundreds of responses, and for the most part, they were one of two extremes. Either he was the worst president we've ever had, or he was the best president we've ever had. Now, maybe history will show that one of these is correct, but there's a good chance it won't. What we have today, in my opinion, is extremes leading to extremes, which, is often, which often leads to us hating our brother and sister. Now, maybe hate is an extreme word, but maybe it's not. I was thinking back to Jamin's first sermon on, on this series a few weeks ago in Genesis, and he says that over and over again, God is saying, this is good. Over and over again. Today, over and over again, we're looking at things and saying, this is bad. But I wonder if God's still saying this is good. How do we tap into his perspective? Well, I think we must be ruled by love more than by anything else. And at the, the root of our love is Christ himself. After all, he died for those we are hating, or sorry, royally disliking. This is Paul's main thing. I want to end back where we started with the story of those four friends one night in Miami. There were a lot of powerful messages in that film, but the one that surprised me most was how drawn I was to the friendship of these four men. No, no one likes to be called out. Sam Cooke certainly didn't like it, and he was totally okay showing his displeasure with Malcolm X. It was fine that he finally had enough and left. They let him. Yet Cassius Clay went to be with him, to be present, but also, after they had spent some time together, to challenge him to go back, to re-engage. A few years ago, I read this book called A Creative Minority by John Tyson. Here's how he defines a creative minority. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. When I think about the friendship of these four men, I think about that phrase, stubbornly loyal relationships. We are getting close to the one-year mark of this pandemic and this quarantine. And I'm being honest when I say I'm not sure what this kind of community looks like. That's being that that I'm I'm seeing in that movie and I'm hearing in that definition. It's hazy in my mind because I haven't had it in a while. We're isolated right now. And the primary way that we connect is through social media. And it is tough to have stubbornly loyal relationships on social media. I, I just started reading this book called Sacred Companions by a guy named David Benner, and I want to read a short excerpt from it. From the preface. He says, The hunger for connection is one of the most fundamental desires of the human heart. We are like immigrants in a new land with no family or friends and no sense of place. We seem to have lost our mooring, or perhaps we have lost some part of ourselves. Like pieces of a puzzle 
seeking their adjoining pieces. We long for connections that will assure us that we belong. But it is not just connections in general that we seek. In the core of our being, we yearn for intimacy. We want people to share our lives. We want soul friends. We were never intended to make the life pilgrimage alone. And attempting, attempting to make the spiritual journey on our own is particularly hazardous. Paradoxically, however, what we most deeply long for, we also fear. How else can we explain our reluctance to be genuinely known by those with whom we are most intimate? Often it seems that what we want is the fruit of companionship without the demands of genuine intimacy. Yet something within us remains dissatisfied with the safe but superficial relationships we experience. Our souls ache for a place of deep encounter with others. Our fears may partially mask this ache, but it won't go away. We want companions for the journey, companions with whom we can share our soul and our journey. Does your heart resonate with these words? I think I would have agreed uh, a year ago with all those words I just read, but today I feel them differently. There's something inside of me that aches for something more than I'm currently experiencing. The other thing I think about this definition of a creative minority, the other thing I think about is the idea of being committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Um, you know, part of the mission of Christ City is that we are becoming people who refresh our world. And the world right now so needs to be refreshed. But the people of God are not doing much refreshing. I think we're actually making things worse right now. In John 13, Jesus said that the world will know him by the love that we show one another. It's interesting to me to note that Jesus chooses to give them this new command right when things are getting crazy. Judas has just left to go get ready to betray him. He's about to shed light on with Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And I'd say things are crazy right now in our world. And one of the saddest things about this divisiveness that we see today is that the world is coming to know Christ by that divisiveness. And I can all day long point to the other side, but at the end of the day, I'm responsible for me. The only person I can change is me. So how am I doing? Well, it depends on who I compare myself to, right? If I read Jesus' words, not so great. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. He said that it's easy to love those who think like us. The real test is tangibly loving those who are not like you. What about that family member who is spouting what seems like crazy talk to you? We say that there's no point in arguing, and that's exactly right, that's, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. How could you surprise that person with love? I'm very convicted by this for me. Tangibly loving others in surprising and creative ways is what the world desperately needs right now. It's what our hearts desperately need today. This is the way that we refresh our world today. Um, I feel like we have a real opportunity to rethink, to reimagine what friendship and community looks like 
what, what we need and what we're willing to do to go after it. We have a real opportunity to do that. And as Lonnie said, I don't remember exactly what you said, but this is the institution that can bring real change. Jesus enacted the church um, to be a signpost of the kingdom of God. That the way we live in our ordinary ways, not some extraordinary ways, but ordinary ways, point to him, point to the kingdom that he's, he's bringing. And boy, it does start in ordinary ways. It starts in ordinary ways, and so we have an opportunity to reimagine that. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you that you are our king, the Messiah, the one who came to make the world right, the one who came to bring people together and show people how to end the hate and begin to love. I pray that you would you'd give us a fresh vision for that this morning, that we'd be reminded of who you are and who you've called us to be. And uh, it's a lonely time. And I pray that you'd show us how to love one another, take care of one another, remind one another who we are, who you are. We need your help in that. And I'm grateful that it's your desire to help us. So we thank you for this time. We pray that as we go into a time of communion, that you draw us close to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.